morning and welcome to Shoesmiths on Tap 2023, the podcast where we talk to each other and to you about what's going on in the world of pensions. This is the first in a series of podcasts on risk transfer projects. And today I'm joined by Adam Davies, Managing Director at K3 Advisory, to talk about funding, specifically surpluses, and specifically in the context of buy-in and buy-out projects. You may recall that in our 2023 predictions, I observed that for many schemes, surplus would be a particular challenge and opportunity for many DB schemes. Adam, welcome and thank you for joining us. There's lots of statistics around aggregate surplus positions in DB pension schemes. Can you tell me a little bit about K3's own analysis of scheme funding? Thanks very much, Suzanne, and thanks for having me. Um, we've been looking, obviously, the pension schemes have seen a dramatic change in scheme funding um, over the last six months, driven by very, very rapid changes in the interest environment and inflation environment that we've seen in the latter half of 2022 and, and early 2023. So scheme funding has, has changed dramatically. Um, our own analysis suggests that now roughly a thousand of the four and a half thousand pension schemes in the UK are at or potentially already in surplus to a buyout position. So this is not just to a funding position, this is actually to a, a buyout position. And we think there's a further, you know, a thousand five hundred schemes that are probably within check writing distance of a buyout. And what do I mean by check writing distance and things like um We've got a number of clients now where the committed schedule of contributions from the employer will definitely take the scheme past buyout funding. So there's now a question of, well, do you accelerate forward those payments? Do you do, you do some sort of deferred premium structure? What do you do? But actually the, the committed contributions from the sponsor is going to take them past buyout. So so that's, that's got to be quite a good news story, isn't it? Now, now I know we've worked with you guys on a number of buying projects over the last couple of years and I've been looking back at our, our own stats and I think around a quarter have involved a scheme with a with a surplus on, on buyout and we'll talk about how schemes have approached the surplus position in those particular cases because they've all been very different. Um, but firstly, what, what's been your experience and how are you finding schemes responding to this challenge? Yeah, so I mean, our own experience on schemes with the surplus is 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 even more than 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 the the shared experience on on those schemes that you talked about. There, we've in the last twenty five months, we've done thirty six buyout transactions, and a half of them, eighteen, have actually been in surplus. Um, and some are only just in surplus, but I mean, some of these schemes have been materially in surplus, like twenty, thirty, forty percent past buyout funding. Um, and some of that's just because of the speed of change. Um, and others is because they're not necessarily monitoring the situation um, that well. Um, we, we find in particular that smaller pension schemes where we have a particular focus, um, historically, you know, they don't do annual updates. They, they're based off triennial valuations. They're not necessarily paying for services such as tracking systems. And, and therefore, they're not, when, when you get a, a quick change in, in market conditions, the way we've seen these schemes are just not up to date on what it means for their scheme. Uh, and, and a lot of these small schemes have just shot past buyout and, and are blissfully still unaware. So I, su- I suppose the question, given market conditions, given given the favourable annuity rates that we've got at the moment, um, what what should trustees be doing? Should should trustees be striking with while the iron's hot, or do you think there's there's scope for for trustees to just kind of keep an eye on things? I think some trustees have concerns about capacity crunch and whether whether insurers are going to actually be interested. In their in their position, yeah. Well, I mean, um, 
I think there's certainly a chance um, that if you, you know, if if our statistics are right and there are a thousand pension schemes sat there right now that could buy out, and typically the insurance market trades maybe 150 transactions a year, then it's clearly not. It's not apparent to me how we're going to be able to trade a thousand schemes immediately. And and funding is only one aspect, as, as you know, Suzanne, from the work that you do on the legal side of schemes and the work the administrators do on schemes. Um, a, a buying transaction is an illiquid investment. You've got to do it right and you, you only get one shot at it. And therefore, not all schemes, although their funding might be there, their, their data quality might not be there. They might not have, have had a proper review of their benefit specification. They might not understand really how their scheme works to the level you need to do an insurance transaction. I think for those schemes, though, if your funding positions improve that much and, and you are now uh, potentially at buyout level or, or, or better, then you've got to look at other ways to de-risk to buy yourself the time to have access to the market and to be able to go to that market in a robust way. Um, I, I think obviously the main tool on that will be the investment strategy that you can put in place and de-risk the assets of the scheme and effectively as much as possible lock them down to how insurer pricing behaves. So you lock in those favourable favourable market movements. Exactly. Well, you can. Exactly, yeah. And I, and I think something that's key in all of this because... The, some of the steps in the process and some of the obligations have been employer obligations to fund the scheme. So in terms of the sponsored trustee dynamic, what, what should trustees be doing to engage with the scheme sponsor at, at this time where they get to a point where the scheme funding is looking favourable or more than favourable with the surplus? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly uh, very important to keep engaged with the employer. I mean, often in order to make uh, an, an, an investment change, trustees will need to at least consult with the employer. Um, I mean, there'll be a number of schemes now, a lot of schemes potentially, that have scheduler contributions that are no longer needed. And I think it's only right that trustees should engage with the sponsor about the funding position, how it's changed and what that means for the ongoing contributions of the scheme. Um, they might want to consider structures to um, make sure they avoid creating a surplus that's not intended. I mean, there'll be a bunch of schemes that have got a surplus now and they're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. And obviously, as you know, there's a variety of ways of doing that. Um, but if, you, if you've not got a surplus, but you're getting close to buyout level, you should start to think about, well, how do we avoid going past the goalpost? So, something that we, we see quite quite commonly used is, is escrow accounts and, and we're seeing an increased number of schemes where they want to set up an escrow arrangement so that funding flow, they have the certainty of that funding flow, but they don't then have the risk of, of the trap surplus that they then have to make some difficult decisions or some complicated decisions on, on what to do and it's certainly becoming a much more popular option. Yeah, and, and it can and it can be done relatively cheaply, right? So it's it's not like it's a vastly complicated solution in the main to, to put into place. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And and there's other uh, you know small um, things that can be done, such as you know maybe historically the employer has paid the expenses of the scheme, but actually if the scheme is now in a very very robust funding position, then there could be a conversation about how scheme expenses are funded. And again, it just it just helps if if trustee and sponsor are on the same page that they don't want to create a surplus. That's question though but if they don't want to create a surplus then then these kind of things can be put in place to to avoid them yes yeah it's very much about planning and, and knowing what your powers are un, under the rules i was in a conversation with with a client yesterday where that question of expenses came up and at the moment the scheme it pays the expenses so we were then looking and thinking well actually could we could we get the employer sorry the employer pays expenses could we get the scheme to pay pay those expenses as it's not going to eradicate the the surplus but it helps manage 
those funding flows where clearly if the employer's been paying surplus paying expenses in in the past then actually that's money that's been coming to the, into the scheme which with hindsight wasn't actually wasn't actually needed yeah exactly and 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 you know you've got to be careful to not uh, create an expectation with a client that the surplus is is more than they think because of course the insurance premium is only one piece of what a scheme needs to pay to eventually wind up uh, and get and get the scheme off the company balance sheet. I mean, most transactions that are taking place at the moment in average business, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same with you, you know, the schemes haven't yet gone through in the main GMB equalisation. So they've got the expenses of that and the member uh, liability uplifts to go through. Um, there's often other small bits and pieces to tidy up in data cleansing and then you've obviously got the the expenses of actually them winding up the scheme you know trustee indemnity insurance which isn't uh, the cheapest type of insurance to, to to buy at the end of the process so all of these expenses are going to eat away at any surplus anyway um but but definitely um for schemes now i think they should be uh understanding their position because i think that's um an issue in many schemes just not understanding their position in terms of funding so they've not either not on a tracking system, or even when people, well, schemes are on a tracking system, a bugbear of mine is that that tracking system will be based off of the scheme data as at the last triennial valuation, which might be up to three years ago. Um, and and of course, some schemes have quite um, you know large numbers of people retiring now each year, which take cash out of the scheme. You get um, you know in the last few years in pensions, there's been a lot of transfer value activity. All of these things generally improve funding to buy out. Uh, but aren't necessarily being captured in the way that schemes are monitoring their position. And so they're inadvertently going past the goalpost uh, without even knowing. Yeah, so it's it's not just tracking, but it's making sure that the, the tracking is, is up to date and as as specific to the scheme's own position as as it can be, or at least that that's factored in. So so in the buying contracts I'm working on where, where the scheme is, is in surplus, um, I've I've seen the position addressed in a number of ways, and and be good to to see what your experiences have been as well. Now, I think there's every possible permutation, and one of the key key steps for the trustees in particular is to know early on what your rules say, and so do the rules give the trustee discretion to augment benefits on winding up, or does it automatically go back to the employer? In some schemes I've seen, it's it's not a discretion. It, it's a blanket statement that any surplus funds after securing all the members' benefits shall be applied to improve member benefits, which then raises questions of of, of how how do you how do you augment benefits? Um, and I think um, the payment to the employer clearly has tax consequences. There is a, a, a minor statutory procedure that that. Mem- uh, that the trustees have to follow, but in some ways that that feels the simplest option over the augmentation. But then, if trustees are obliged or they at least have a discretion to augment, that is a, a careful due process decision that they have to take. And I was just wondering what what have you found? What what scenarios have you found? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's it's a really um, can be quite a thorny area. Um, in small schemes, one of, one of the uh, issues we see, although it's changing over time as, as small schemes are starting to use professional trustees more, but, you know, we still work with a lot of small schemes where actually the the, the overlap between sponsor and trustee, they're, they're almost one of the same. And that makes this part quite 
difficult and and and, and you know it's very difficult for the, the somebody in that position to um to wear both of those hats and come up with a sensible decision. So we, we see that as an issue quite quite often with with smaller schemes in particular. I, I don't think it's such an issue with with, with larger schemes. Um, and then in our experience of the surplus schemes that we've worked on, um, I mean, a lot of these are active cases. They've not wound up yet. So the actual end position hasn't been absolutely finalised, but the intention in most cases is to um, provide a refund to the sponsor um, with, with no augmentation. But but on that, I would say that there are a number of areas we find on buy-ins where... Um, at almost little or no cost, you can actually slightly enhance members' benefits from what they're getting today. I mean, we see some schemes with fairly, what I would call, penal terms for things like cash commutation um, and transfer values. Um, and often those terms, albeit that's only for the deferred members, often those terms have improved on doing a buying transaction. We also see some of the kind of um, more fringe benefits, uh, so, you know, certain lump sum benefits on death, etc., where... You, the, the insurer is actually actively trying to simplify the benefit in a way that works for them, but is actually more beneficial to the member. So often when we do a buy-in, we actually slightly improve members' overall benefits anyway, but then the employer typically then would like the remaining money back because effectively they overfunded the scheme would be their, would be their take on it. Yes, yeah. And, and those generous options at, at the buy, buy-in stage are, are, are relatively simple to achieve it, it goes back to what we've said about needing to know what your rules say and if think particular things are fixed then the trustees would just need to think about well do we need to make a formal rule amendment or are we using the augmentation power but those are quite simple procedural points and if it makes it simpler to to engage the insurer in the process as well and i know the insurers in our experience do do like things to be as simple as possible where that can be achieved. Now, just, just going back to the to the augmentation question, um, partly because I've, I've got a live case at the moment where, where the trustees are at the a planning stage um, and they're thinking about the fact that they have an absolute obligation to augment benefits and, and they've had perennial questions from, from pensioners in particular about pre-97 discretionary increases those aren't being awarded at the moment. I can see that as soon as there's any discussion about securing member benefits and winding up the scheme, buying everything out with, with an insurance company, I can see there being almost tension in a campaign between the, the pension members who say, we want pre-97 discretionary increases and people who've been active members during the years where they've seen their contributions increase and they've seen their accrual rate reduce so they may be saying well hang on a second we could have had to say we could have had a more generous level of benefit and not paid as much contribution so 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 we the the most recent active members would like our share of that augmentation so i think that's a, a difficult balancing act trustees are going to have in those sorts of cases yeah i think that's i think that's right and you know um trying to um think that through um, longer term rather than just react to uh, short term markets so you know there's there is a lot of discussion on discretionary increases at the moment because you know we're, we're living through a, a cost of living crisis and, and high inflation where we haven't for the last decade uh, and you know when we may not do a, you know that could revert itself um, going forward so I think you, you have to be careful not to be too short termism in, in your thinking about which members should benefit but the trustees obviously need to 
take advice from their legal advisor and their scheme actuary um, around the different options. I mean, as a as a professional in the uh, broking of bulk annuities, the the other aspect is to to not overcomplicate what you are going to secure for members, though, because if you've got money that you're going to need to use to augment member benefits, then I think the, the the I think the duty should be to use as much of that money as possible to enhance members' benefits rather than losing some of it in frictional costs. So if you do something that's a benefit structure that's going to create uh, more a need for the insurer to hold more capital than another benefit structure, then you're potentially losing value to members um, through through overcomplicating it. So I've, I've often thought that, you know, you really need to try and keep benefit augmentations simple. Um, and and engage with the insurer, engage with a broker, and just and just discuss what the kind of options that you know are likely to lead to more more of that money ended up in the members' pocket than than anybody else's. Yeah, no, that's a, a very good point, and I, I think it comes to the need for planning as well in terms of the augmentation process because there is the the possibility that if you're augmenting benefits, then at what stage do you plan for that? Because are you at risk of infringing the material change clauses that you've agreed with an insurer? Because if you're augmenting benefits and you haven't allowed for that in the contract process, the insurer might say, well, hang on a second, that's a material change and you've you've exceeded the thresholds that we agreed. So you don't really want to catch the insurer out by surprise and then find that you've got some hidden extra cost and, and delay as a consequence. That's right. I mean, the scheme you talked about that you're working on there obviously knows that, that they're going to need to augment um, benefits, but, um, you know, other schemes may be in a surplus and they don't know what they're going to do with it. And if you don't know, then again, you need to plan uh, and have some foresight in the insurance contract. I agree on, on the material bounds cause, you you know, you need to carve that type of change out so that you don't become unstuck there and give the insurer the right to, I don't think they would want to, but give them the right to reprice I also think you need to plan it up front because if the, it depends how material the surplus is. You know, if it's if it's a percent or so of the liability or two percent or three percent, then maybe it's not that big a deal. But we've seen some schemes with significant surpluses. A recent one that we transacted was a a scheme with 150 million of assets and 100 million of bio liability. I mean, a huge surplus. Now, whether that goes to members or not, I don't I don't know. Um, but you know, in in transacting uh, things with surplus, we were certainly thinking about there. Um, the potential is, does that impact which insurer we might choose? Uh, because the the way you might augment benefits, you know, does that impact on, you know, if I just choose based on the liability of the base level, am I going to get the same insurer who would win that actually if I was going to do the larger transaction on a slightly different benefit structure potentially? Um, so again, um, it's something we, we do raise with schemes where they're in a certain position up front with the hope of getting at least some high-level principle set down as to what might happen. Um, so that we can engage with the insurers up front on, on that topic. Thank you. And something else that we're, we're seeing is employers who have multiple schemes. Sometimes they may have one scheme that's in surplus and they're taking steps to, to secure that scheme and, and winding up. But then they think, well, hang on a second, we've got a surplus in one scheme, but the other scheme's still in deficit uh, or, or it's uh, not fully funded on a buyout basis. We want to be able to to share the gains from one scheme with the other scheme. And what we found is that some clients have explored, well, could we therefore just transfer 
that surplus from one scheme to the other and, and, and there's certain conversations that we've we've had with, with um HMRC about this as to whether it's a, a recognised transfer for, for tax purposes. And I think they're beginning to, to accept that actually this may work as a solution, but but I don't think it's a blanket decision. It seems to be very much on a case by case basis. But it goes back to what you said about the frictional costs, because clearly if the cost of that an emerger project is it's a substantial project on its own, even if you haven't got a buyout attached to it as well. So there is a risk there that the frictional costs may exceed the actual benefits in terms of the tax consequence that the met, that the employer would experience. But I don't know if you've seen seen that there's a solution at all. Yeah, well, I've, I've certainly been involved in conversations about the potential to, to merge schemes. And I think, you know, it's, it's exactly what you said. There's a cost-benefit analysis there because, of course, the, 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 the sponsor will have, um, in most cases, the sponsor will have had tax relief on the way in with their contributions. They're going to have to pay more than that in tax on the way out. So there's a frictional tax cost. You can you can understand what that is in pound amount terms, how much you're effectively um, frittering away. Um, and then compare that to, well, how much does it cost to to implement a solution like a scheme merger? That means we don't pay that cost. And, um, you know, in, in, if the surplus isn't, if the surplus is very large, I'm sure it would wipe its face. But often with, with surplus, you know, a, a small surplus, it just wouldn't make sense to. Um, it doesn't seem to me that it's an, it's um, it's possible to make a scheme merger a simple process. Uh, each scheme is a bit different. It's unique. There's certain processes you've got to go through, both actuarial and legal, and, and unfortunately they take time and they and they incur cost, uh, which which makes it in a lot of cases, in my experience, impractical to do. And and it and it again goes back to the starting point of, of do your scheme rules actually allow it? And and you you'd think that most schemes would be sufficiently flexible, but it's not always the case. And, and as you say, when you start weighing up the cost benefit analysis of the advisor costs. And the time as well, because it's management time for both the company and the trustees of the scheme. So yeah. it's not necessarily the easy solution. Conceptually, it's quite simple. Yes. When you start delving into it, sometimes it's not, not such. A- yeah, it's, a, it's an easy suggestion to make, as you say, because it, it, make, it makes conceptually um, makes a lot of sense. I mean, we've got a client at the moment that's got multiple schemes, uh, all in different positions. And um, one of their schemes is sectionalized. And in, in that it's only got two sections and, and in that there's one in surplus and one in deficit but the net position overall is surplus and that uh, we understand is actually going to be quite easy to solve because it's not so much a merger it's going to de- de-sectionalize it and so on and then and, and we'd be told that's actually going to be quite easy to achieve but then trying to do a solution between schemes um it just for the size of those schemes and the surplus that exists it just doesn't wipe its face in no. terms of the complexity the the sponsor will just um Assuming the sponsor takes the money back, that decision that being made, they'll they'll just pay tax on it. Yeah, yeah, and so sometimes that that's perhaps the simplest approach, but it, it is very fact specific. Um, just one one final question for me, partly because I was reading that the government's delayed plans to increase state pension age to sixty eight, and that's that's coming out of advice and and findings in re- respect of, of mortality and the fact that I think it's a continuous mortality investigation has concluded that actually life expectancy for a 65 year old pension scheme member um, is is actually going to be reduced when the CMI releases its annual mortality protection in June. Um, so perhaps for, for, for the world at large, not such a good news story, but but clearly this has an impact on, on pension scheme liabilities and, and also annuity 
pricing. So, so with your actuarial hat on, be useful to to know what you, what your thoughts are on on how how significant that's likely to be. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was reading the same thing and and, and a kind of um, roughly a year um, less life expectancy. But you say it's not it's not good news as a as a as a human being that with that um, the the life expectancies, but certainly um, you'd expect actuaries to potentially take account of that um there's always a danger and you have to be careful and you have to be careful with cmi models that um they can be a bit spiky and 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 overreact slightly to um the most recent data but of course there are a lot of things going on in the world and the pandemic that that you know seem to be edging towards pushing life expectancy down so actuaries will take that account of in funding and accounting valuations um I mean, insurance pricing, you would expect to follow suit. Sometimes uh, it, it takes a bit of time and, and, and insurers insist on, a, and their reinsurers insist on a fair amount of evidence to justify reducing assumptions, but you would definitely expect that in time it would factor into annuity pricing. Um, of course, that should bring people closer to buyout um, and, and therefore to be able to achieve the security. And this is the security of member benefits sooner, which which I think is it, it should be good news. I mean... I do see some market commentary that says, you know, I've seen a few comments on this now saying, well, you know, if schemes are winning because of this mortality, then, you know, maybe we should, you know, maybe this should be done by, you know, enhancing members' benefits. And, 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 and I'm, I, you know, I, I can't see that that's reasonable or, or a fair approach. Um, that seems to be an approach that says if, if anything positive happens in scheme funding, then you should benefit the member. And if the risk... And scheme funding gets worse, then well, that's tough luck for the employer, and they need to fund it. And that doesn't seem the right balance of, of uh, you know, member wins, but employer loses. I think it's the employers are taking the risk on this scheme, and risk work both ways. They have to fund it if these things go against them, and and they should benefit if it, if it goes in their favour. In my opinion, um, I mean, I think at their heart, DB benefits are uh, very generous, and uh, not many people of of the uh, current working population actually benefit from those uh, very generous types of schemes anymore no no and it, it sounds as if the the benefit to schemes will be more immediate when you compare it to the annuity pricing it sounds like there'll be a bit of a time lag in the annuity pricing and for it to flow through and as, as you say it may be a, a short-term blip or it may be a longer yeah yeah and 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 and, and I, you know I don't, I don't know for certain how quickly insurers would would factor this in um you know i i don't think in any case you know it's it's it, hugely you know radical in terms of you know you know wait wait a little bit and you're going to see your annuity prices five percent cheaper i mean there's always conversation always ask is, is this the right time to do it you know should i wait um to do a, a transaction and i think you know if you can get a price on the table now that's attractive to you uh is it a cost that's acceptable to you you can secure your member benefits then then you know um waiting is just a risk it can go either way um and i would do the transaction um I mean, time will tell whether annuity pricing is affected by all sorts of things, not just life expectancy. And will will market pricing harden um, based on the sheer demand from schemes for that solution? Um, I mean, basic economic theory would tell you that at some point annuity pricing will harden. Yeah, supply and demand. Are... Just supply and demand. Yes. I mean, you know, uh, there'll be other factors. We're, we're aware of new insurers looking to come to this market, uh, so there'll be fresh supply, some fresh capital. Um, I mean, uh, probably a little bit off piece for this for this um, for this podcast. But I mean, actually, the, the the real challenge across law firms, across actuarial firms, uh, and across insurers is going to be the human resource 
to actually get this number of schemes over the line. And already, I don't know what your experience, Suzanne, is, but we're seeing, and, and I think this will be absolutely the case in nine months, 12 months' time, where schemes are in the buy-in, they finish their data cleansing, and they're stuck and can't wind up because they can't get utilization done uh, in a timely manner. You know, I think there's just going to be such a crunch on uh, actuarial and administration resources that you'll have a bunch of clients literally ready to wind up and can't do so because of GMP. I think that is most definitely a podcast for another day. <laughs> Certainly, we'll be we'll be coming on to talk with, with your, yourself and, and and others about the 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 buy in and buy out journey more generally in terms of planning and and I'm sure we won't be able to avoid GMP equalization in in that conversation for sure. So. Ultimately, in, in summary, I think the key key messages from today's discussion are that an open dialogue between company and trustees is is important. Knowing what your rules say, not just in terms of your powers to, to buy in benefits, your powers to wind up the scheme, but also what they say about augmentation, what they say about, about surplus when your scheme is winding up what they say about around things like commutation factors and, and general benefits is is important. And also the key message is that this all requires very careful project planning. It's not a quick overnight step that can be taken, but we'll have more on the project planning phase of risk transfer at a future date. Thank you. Adam, many thanks for joining me today. Um, that's all from us today. And if you want to find out more about the Shoesmith Pensions team and the work we do, please visit us at, bear with me while I say this, www.shoesmith.co.uk forward slash expertise forward slash services forward slash pensions. And if you have any questions on today's podcast or anything else, please send them to our mailbox, which is pensions. P for Peter, S for Shoesmith, L for lawyer at shoesmith.co.uk. And Adam will give you K3's website details. Yeah, so you can find out more about the work K3 does in the uh, buyout broking market by visiting www.k3advisory.com or you can mail us at pensions at k3advisory.com. Thank you. 